Back in October 1970, I joined the 219th Craft Apprentice Entry to No. 2 School of Technical Training at RAF Cosford, H-Flight in Fulton Block. After two years, I was posted to the Aircoms Bay at RAF Honington, where a few months later I saw something in the orders about technical help wanted for the Buccaneer Flight Simulator. After taking a tour of the equipment, I applied to transfer for training as a simulator technician where the work was a lot more interesting than changing modules in radio equipment second-line servicing. March 1975, and simulator technicians were moved into the new trade of electronic technician synthetic trainer. Later I was posted to the Buccaneer Simulators at RAF Larbrook. My final posting was to the Argosy Simulator at RAF Benson. I left the service in July 1980 and joined Great British Air as a simulator technician at the Crane Bank Training Centre, living for a few weeks at RAF Uxbridge, kind of a halfway house between the mob and my civilian employment. It was at about this time that I bought a lifetime membership to the Royal Air Forces Association, when £30 really was a lot of money. At Crane Bank I was assigned to maintain the Boeing 737, the latest addition to the fleet of flight simulators. Boasting a motion system with six degrees of freedom and a powerful VAX 11780 computer made by Digital Equipment, the American computer company, it was sophisticated equipment for the time. By August, I was well settled into my new work, with Pete, my supervisor and other members of the team. We were working the graveyard shift early one morning, around 1 o'clock, and we'd finished our routine maintenance on the simulator. I was working on some software in the computer room. As I worked, I heard some relays energise, hearing activity from the disk storage units and, in the distance, the whine of the hydraulic pumps starting. Now this is usual, and I assume that Pete was taking the simulator for a test flight. The door of the computer room had a panel of glass, through which I had seen no one go down the corridor. However, I was working and I could have missed Pete on his way to the simulator. When I continued with my work, I could hear the vigorous swish, swishing from the hydraulic jacks. And that told me that Pete was putting the machine through an extensive set of manoeuvres. Now, some 30 minutes later, I heard clicking from the relays as they de-energised in the main interface and a sharp drop in disk activity, which told me that Pete had landed, repositioning the machine at the end of our simulated runway at Heathrow. Leaving the computer room, I walked down the corridor and out onto the mezzanine of the high bay, just in time to see the simulator settle on its jacks with a huge sigh from the depleting pressure in the hydraulic system. Once the simulator was at rest, the access ramp lowered itself automatically like a drawbridge, and it allowed me to walk across the gulf to the mechanical island that was the simulator. On sliding the door open, to my surprise, I found the cockpit empty. Inside, I looked around. Nothing. Disconcerted, I went downstairs to the crew room and I found Pete drinking tea while working on some papers. Pete, I heard the simulator start up run for 30 minutes, and then shut down. I thought you were flying, but when I went on board, it was empty. What's going on? It's an intermittent fault that we can't find, said Pete. 
We used to push the emergency stop buttons, but we found the machine suffered no damage. When it happens, we let it go, unless we're standing within reach of an emergency stop. Haven't you tried to find out what's wrong? Yes, Andy, we have. But, like I said, it is intermittent. It's been months since we last had a problem. Anyway, since it started acting up again, why don't you look into it? You're new here. It's an opportunity to learn more about the machine. A few weeks later, I had an opportunity to investigate this little problem. About the 10th of September, I think it was, and by that time I know I'd left Uxbridge and moved to my cottage in Emsworth on the south coast. Despite the long drive each day to work, a total of three hours of commuting, I felt much easier living in my own abode, and I'd settled into the routine of working a rotating shift system. Again, our team was on the graveyard shift, and again I was in the computer room, when I heard the simulator start. I was working on a program to make visual databases easier to construct. When I heard the activity of the machine, I called the crew room by telephone. Pete answered and he said that no one should be in the simulator. Taking this as my cue, I began my investigation of this strange phenomenon. I tried to log into the computer from the master console, but I found myself locked out. Next, I went out onto the mezzanine and I watched the evolutions of the motion system, much more extravagant than what you see from a pilot practicing ordinary line-orientated flight training. The motion bucked and twisted like an unbroken horse at a rodeo contest. Strange, too, was the environmental sound system that had become incoherent, for instead of the whine of turbines, I could hear a rattle that increased and decreased in frequency with the movements of the motion system. It was like the sound of an overexcited bee. Not able to see what was happening, I pushed the emergency stop button. Once the drawbridge had lowered, I walked across to the darkened simulator. Stepping in, I found nothing. Although the atmosphere was much colder than I should have expected, and angry electrical static charged the air, prickling the hairs on the nape of my neck, causing an involuntary shudder. It was as though someone had stepped over my grave, and I shivered again, and I swallowed. I walked back to the computer room in haste, with that uneasy feeling between the shoulder blades that attends an unprotected back. Having gained the brightly illuminated safety of the computer room, I tried again to log in at the master console, this time with success. Checking the error logs, I could find nothing wrong. During the next three days, nothing happened. Everything in the simulator worked as normal. We had no unattended operation of the machine. And on the night of the 14th of September, I was standing on the floor of the high bay next to the hydraulic control cabinet, wondering why we'd had no further activity. It was then that I noticed the gate onto the drawbridge standing open, as it had been on the previous three nights. And then I understood why we hadn't seen any activity. With the gate open, you see, The safety interlocks would be incomplete and nothing would work. 
By now, it was too late to do anything further, well, as our shift was at an end. Back at work the next day, and this time, I'd made sure that the gate was closed. I waited in the computer room when I heard the relays click. I looked at my watch and I noted the time. It was one o'clock. Walking down and out onto the floor of the high bay, I watched the wild gyrations of the motion platform, and I listened to the maniac sound of the runaway sound system. Soon, the motion system gave a violent jerk and pitched forward, nose down, and the sound system emitted harsh noise of increasing pitch. Then silence. Then the depletion valves opened on the hydraulic pack. The motion platform settled back onto an even keel. The drawbridge lowered itself. I ran up the stairs onto the mezzanine and across the bridge to the simulator. I pulled open the door. I recoiled at the smoke, simulated smoke. Once it had started to clear, I stepped inside. I could smell something underlying the smell of hot glycol. It was a smell out of place that I'm sure I would have identified in other circumstances. Once this smoke had cleared, I found everything normal. I logged into the computer from the onboard maintenance terminal and I checked the error logs. This time I found a crash condition caused by excessive g-forces on the airframe. Nevertheless, I was puzzled still but we had no more incidents. Strange activity of the simulator stopped on the 15th of September. Nearly a year later, and my work shift arrangements didn't coincide with the graveyard watch for the entire month of August 1981 for the first week of September, I was too sick with influenza to be working. Luckily, my work schedule showed me assigned to the graveyard shift during those critical few days leading up to the 15th of September. Having arranged to keep the safety gate open on the drawbridge to the simulator during the early hours of Saturday the 12th and Sunday the 13th of September, I prepared myself for the early morning of Monday the 14th. Now, I am no Braveheart, and I was nervous, and I nearly even talked myself out of this curious adventure. At half past midnight, on Monday morning, I walked across the drawbridge to the simulator. I closed the gate behind me. Inside, I slid the cockpit door shut. I repositioned the simulation to the beginning of runway 27L at Heathrow. I sat in the co-pilot seat on the right-hand side of the cockpit and I waited for what I felt sure would arrive in force, having thwarted it with my careful attention during the previous few days. I'd looked into the events of 1940 in the Battle of Britain. Air Marshal Dowding conducted air operations from RAF Bentley Priory against the Luftwaffe. Dowding had about 600 aircraft at his disposal with crews inexperienced in aerial combat, unlike the opposing forces of the Luftwaffe, who had ample opportunity to gain valuable training over Spain. 
Dowding's plan was to husband his forces, to live to fight another day. He'd issued standing orders for the defenders to engage the bomber fleets of the Luftwaffe only, to leave the fighter escorts well alone. Messerschmitt's BF-109 fighters were well flown, but the lack of fuel limited their engagement time over England. Usually, the Spitfire could outmanoeuvre a BF-109, but it did not perform well at high altitudes and was subject to engine stoppage when pulling negative g-force, which inhibited operation of the engine carburetors. Pressurised fuel injection kept the BF-109 engine running at all altitudes. All sections scramble. 70 plus bandits approaching. Angels 1-5. The cockpit of the simulator went dark, starting me from my reverie. Suddenly, the atmosphere became very cold, accompanied by a dramatic build-up in electrical static. I reached out to grasp the control column to adjust myself in my seat and received a shocking static discharge that produced a pink spark between the control wheel and my hand, which I withdrew in haste. On came the power to the cockpit, and I felt the motion base rise from its settled position. Seized by an urge, I got out of the co-pilot's seat, and I sat in the captain's seat on the port side of the cockpit. I strapped myself in. I moved the seat forward, and I looked out at the visual system. To my utter amazement, we were at Heathrow no longer. It was daylight and I was looking across open grass from what looked like a dispersal point of a military airfield. Odd too was the motion system of the simulator, sitting lower aft than forward, and the environmental sound system produced the sound of a propeller driven by a reciprocating engine. And instead of the horizontal and vertical situation indicators glowing colour on the multifunction displays, I saw a black and white reproduction of a blind flying panel standard in aircraft of the late 1930s. Looking across to my right, I saw that the build-up of electrical energy in the co-pilot seat on the starboard side had coalesced into the unworldly blue aura of St. Elmo's fire. It shimmered, fizzed, and crackled around the seat, the control wheel, the throttle levers, and the rudder pedals. The throttles moved forward from idle, and the brakes released. We started to roll forward onto a concrete taxiway. Looking out forward, I saw us turning left and right, snaking our way to the point where we would begin our takeoff roll. At each jink to the right, I had a glimpse of the way ahead. Very soon, we turned into the wind, and the throttles moved all the way forward, and the control column moved all the way back. I heard the engine note rise to a full-throated roar. Looking out of the cockpit to my left, I saw us moving rapidly past gun emplacements, and I saw uniformed men working. As we gained speed, the column moved forward enough to raise our tail off the ground, and I could see forward more clearly. Within moments, the ground fell away. We were airborne. I felt the thump of the undercarriage retract into the wings. We turned southeast, climbing the while as hard as we could to gain advantage of height and the sun. I switched the cockpit loudspeakers to the radio telephone channel 
and heard a woman's voice giving directions to engagements with the enemy in calm, measured tones. I felt a shudder run through the airframe, and I heard the sound of our eight machine guns firing. Another short test burst. Looking down to the left, and I could see London spread out. But not the London that I know, for there was no post office tower or any other high-rise buildings. Pools of smoke were rising from the Docklands areas of the East End. Barrage balloons floated serenely above the destruction on the ground. We flew over Kent. As we crossed the coastline, I saw one set of towers that comprised part of the chain home radar system. The system that was giving us flying directions via the plotting room back on the ground. Now we were out over the channel and below, far ahead, I could see the enemy bomber fleet advancing to its target. We'd gained the advantage of height with the sun behind us, the aerial equivalent of Nelson getting the weather gauge of the enemy fleet. Rolling into a dive onto the formation below, we dived through the protective umbrella of fighters onto the bombers. We chose a leader. Our speed had increased to a dangerous level. I heard our engine throttled back and watched us draw closer and closer until I could see the occupants of the bomber's cockpit. I felt and heard our machine guns fire and I saw the enemy's canopy shatter. Bits of plexiglass blew away into the slipstream. In the few seconds we had the bomber in sight, we raked it from stem to stern. From then on, the motion of the cockpit was violent as we pulled up and joined the melee of fighting aircraft. Out of ammunition, we broke off the attack and returned the way we'd come, back to the airfield where we described a gentle curve into the wind and executed a perfect three-point landing, taxiing back to our dispersal. We stopped. Dark went the cockpit. It grew warmer and the power returned. When I looked in the direction of the co-pilot, the St. Elmo's fire was gone. Multifunction displays had returned to their colourful graphics. Looking out, I saw that we were sitting back at Heathrow, and the visual system had returned to its dusk night display. In spite of the warmth, I shivered, and I walked out of the machine onto the drawbridge. I was drenched in sweat. It was as though I'd been transported in time to the past of 1940, the clock on the wall said I'd been gone only 30 minutes, but it seemed a lot longer. Somewhat dazed from my unusual experience, I went home at about 8 o'clock on the Monday morning. Early morning shift work has never agreed with my constitution. When I got home, I went to bed and was up and about at 1 o'clock in the afternoon while grilling some pork chops for my dinner. While waiting for them to cook, I stepped into the garden of my house wondering what should I do with the simulator. Standing outside the kitchen door, I remembered again the strange smell I noted when last I found the simulator full of smoke. Oddly, it was getting stronger by the moment. I turned into the kitchen and quickly grabbed the grilling pan and carried my flaming chops out into the garden, my pork burnt to inedible blackness. It was then that I understood what had happened on the 15th of September 1940. The temporal remains of that unquiet soul of a pilot had crashed and burned in his spitfire. 
what was I to do to lay this poor fellow to rest? Putting on my coat, I left the house. I locked the door behind me and I walked across the fields to Emsworth, down Queen Street, across the square to Coal Exchange Public House. Calling for a pint of Gale's HSB, I sat considering the facts as I saw them. But first, I gazed into the amber beer, mentally saluting the pilot. A pilot who, having gone for a Burton, got short measure and stuck in a kind of purgatory. Something must have happened during that battle of the 15th to cause this soul so much unrest. Also, I noted that the simulator had crashed because of excessive G-forces acting on the airframe. Of course, an aircraft out of control and falling from the sky would soon experience such forces. Pilots had to bail out directly before the uncontrolled G-force became intolerable, making parachuting to safety difficult or even impossible. I remember very little of my drive up the A3 to London, Heathrow and the Crane Bank Training Centre. Early tomorrow morning would be the anniversary of the Battle of Britain, the anniversary of the demise of my pilot, the manifestation of whom would take over the simulator in a desperate attempt to adjust its eternal fate. It would not succeed, that spirit, not unless I gave it some help. On the half hour past midnight, I seated myself in the Boeing 737 simulator, with the gate onto the drawbridge closed. By this time I'd seated myself at the instructor's operating console, with my seatbelt fastened securely because I was sure I was in for a rough ride. After repositioning the simulator to the approach end of runway 27L and displaying the area map on the instructor's control and display unit, I sat and I waited nervously. As usual, a sharp drop in the temperature of the cockpit alerted me. Again, the prickle of static electricity caused an involuntary shudder in me. All power to the cockpit was removed, to return some moments later. I saw the motion system warning light start to flash and I felt the motion base rise and settle into that tail-down altitude. At the co-pilot station, I saw St Elmo's fire flicker in ethereal blue around the seat, the control column, throttle quadrant and rudder pedals. We received instruction from the plotting room at Bentley Priory. Glancing at the area map on the instructor's console, I saw that we were repositioned to an airfield a little to the south of London. Looking out at the visual, I saw us taxi from our dispersal, taking off in haste. We were late, probably because a link in the chain home radar was off the air. This time we didn't have the advantage of the height or the sun. We engaged the enemy closely, so close less than 250 yards at which our guns were harmonised, much less than the official harmonisation of the 650 yards. We brought down two of the attacking bombers before we ourselves were attacked by an escorting fighter. I glimpsed the BF-109 as we plunged and soared, twisted and turned, trying to gain the upper hand. By making a near-vertical dive for the ground, the Luftwaffe pilot broke off the attack. I sensed he was now short of fuel or out of ammunition. Instead of turning again to the bombers, we dived in pursuit. I felt my pulse race as we approached our crisis. Quickly, I scanned the instructor's console and rapidly pressed the crash inhibit button, followed by the fuel freeze button, 
attempting to override the stress section of the flight dynamics program and the computer that calculated the consumption of fuel. Not a moment too soon, our quarry ahead executed the beginning of the deft Immelman turn and was on our tail in an instant. I felt the impact of 20mm cannon shells on our airframe. My pilot was knocked unconscious, for I saw the controls go slack. We spun down through what remaining height we had left, and the cockpit started to fill with smoke. Immediately I donned the instructor's mask, and I just saw the green fields of England in a whirling blur before the smoke in the cockpit obscured them. My pilot recovered his senses. I heard the scream of the engine abate with the throttle snapped back to idle. With a loud crackle of static, the smoke parted, and I saw the control column and rudder pedals moving to counteract the direction of the spin. Around the control column, the blue electrical charge glowed bright and the column moved aft. We pulled out of our dive with not more than 50 feet to spare. As we did so, the throttle moved forward and the engine increased its revolutions. We climbed to 100 feet above ground level before the engine stopped dead, seized from overheating, caused by the loss of its glycol coolant. Smoke in the cockpit thinned momentarily. Through the windshield, I saw that we were losing altitude towards a train moving from left to right. Pilot saw it too. Quickly, he dipped the nose to gain speed and then pulled back on the stick at the point where we could see faces in the carriages of the train. We skimmed over the train carriages and sank into a field on the opposite side. A wheels-up landing, nose high. In the sudden silence, I took a deep breath and relaxed the crushing grip I'd taken of the arm of my seat. Fans extracted the theatrical smoke from the cockpit. The St. Elmo's fire detached itself from the co-pilot's control and coalesced into a plasma the size of a football. It moved across the cockpit to hang just in front of my face. I was too numb to flinch away. I sat there, looking into its blue luminescence for some moments. I felt examined. I noticed the ball diminishing, smaller and smaller. Soon it was the size of a pea, and with a pop, it was gone. My forearms tingled. My stomach was tensed tight. Waves of hot and cold swept over me. Out of the simulator, I rushed to the bathroom, where I vomited copiously. Back in the crew room, I told Pete that I had to go home as I was feeling ill. You look as though you've seen a ghost, Andy. Well, I'll see you tomorrow, if you're feeling any better. My time with Great British Air was short. They had one of their periodic workforce reductions, and they asked for volunteers to leave. I applied, but by the time I'd found out that they wanted to retain all simulator personnel, I'd found myself a job as an electrical engineer with a small manufacturer of flight simulators in the United States. So I resigned, and I went west myself in 1982. Electrical engineering design of flight simulators was more interesting than keeping them running. By 1985, the small company was in financial difficulties. That made seeing the future easy, so I resigned and joined Flight Safety International and stayed there until I retired in 2018. For the remaining 22 years of my working life, I was a project engineer for the flight training devices used by the USAF and USN 
as part of the ground-based T6A and T6B Texan II Joint Primary Aircrew Training System. After 48 years of continuous employment and adventures that began at RAF Cosford in 1970, it was time to metaphorically pull the handle, bang out and parachute to safety. Scramble was written by Andrew Sheed and adapted for the Royal Air Forces Association. To learn more about the Royal Air Forces Association and how it connects and supports members of the RAF communities around the world, visit rafa.org.uk.